What a perfect song to prepare us for Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word this morning to that location, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read that portion and pray for God's mercy as we study his perfect and precious word together. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our sovereign God. Hear them knowing that in the Scripture and in the Scripture alone, we know the true story of the world. I'm going to read the second person plurals in that way as I read this to you this morning. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which y'all have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to y'all's call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. By grace, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He had descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. Join me in prayer. O Lord, We gather before Your Word. We gather before You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer. Lord, we thank You for the Scripture, the Word of the Gospel. We thank You for this portion of Your Word. And we pray, Lord, that it would transform us that it would change us, that we would walk into a new reality of what You have done with more clarity than we've ever known before. Oh Lord, any apart from Christ, bring them to faith today. You have the power to save, which we've seen displayed in the baptistry this morning. Do it today for the glory of Your name. Sweep new people in the peace of Your kingdom. And O Lord, make us a people who know better because we've come today what it means to bear with one another in love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul the prisoner, O prisoner of Rome, but as he says, prisoner of the Lord, in prison because of his willingness to preach the gospel no matter the cost, no matter who liked the message or not. And his own brethren despised what he was saying, and so there he sits in prison. But he writes to the churches in Ephesus. And the first thing he does is spend the first three chapters of this letter talking about who the church is. 
It's all about what God in Christ has done for us, in us, and among us. It's, it's not a message in the first three chapters about what we do. It's a matter, it, it is a testimony to what He has done. In all of those three chapters, in those 66 verses that make up those three chapters, there is one command. That one command is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, and it is a command to remember. And the, the memory that we are supposed to have is who we are apart from Christ. Who we are before Christ. Now, that command makes perfect sense because we're thinking about what Christ has done for us, in us, and among us. And we must know that it is a powerful work because we know who we are apart from Christ. And then when we get to Ephesians chapter 4-6, through there, there is a definite shift that is very clear. For in these three chapters and 89 verses, there are 40 commands. 40. He's essentially saying, now that you know who you are, become who you are. You know it. You've experienced it. It's a reality in your life. Now spend the rest of your life leaning into it. Making it a part of your inner being. Displaying it in greater and greater ways as you live in this fallen world. Now that you know who you are, become who you are. This is Paul's pattern. Not only here, but elsewhere. Paul always declares Gospel truth. The fact of the Gospel. The reality of the Gospel. And that precedes, but leads to, gospel implications. The gospel changes us. The gospel makes us new people. Our, uh, as Paul puts it, we are new creations in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away and all things are made new. The gospel indicative, the reality of the gospel leads to gospel implications, our imperatives, the commands of the gospel. That we would become more and more who we are in Christ. Now, preachers often get to Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 6 and, and say something like, now. Paul wants us to apply the Gospel to our lives. I am really, really uncomfortable with that way of putting it. As though chapter 1-3 through was not supposed to be applied to our lives. As if the reality of what God has done for us, in us, and among us is not to be applied to the way we live our lives. That, that, that's not a helpful way of putting it at all. The, the, the thinking is Ephesians 1-3, through that's not practical, and now we get practical with these commands. Ephesians 1-3 through is not something to apply our lives to, but now we finally have gotten to the stuff that we need to do. Hear me. There's not one syllable that God has revealed about Himself and had 
inscripturated for us that is not meant to change the way we live. Not one syllable. You've got to start thinking about application differently. In fact, it is the being overwhelmed with the statement of what He has done for us, in us, and among us that causes us to see a new world and to realize that as His adopted sons, we have been ushered into this world. This is our story, not the one we've been living. We are not finding things in the Bible to pull out and apply to the story that we are already telling ourselves. That's not what we're doing. Because it's the wrong story. What we're doing is taking ourselves and applying ourselves to the reality of who God says we are now. Do you see the difference? So you'll hear me say a lot, not take this truth and apply it to your life, but you'll hear me say a lot, how are you going to take your life and apply it to the truth of what God says here? An adopted child is placed in a family And the most important thing is for them to learn their family story. And then they start leaning into it. And one day, when they go to granddad's house, that's not an odd person that they're trying to figure out why they're going there anymore. That's my granddad. You see, they start living a new reality. That's what he calls us to. It's better to say... Ephesians 1-3 through tells us our new story. It tells us our new reality. It tells us the true story of the world. And Ephesians 4-6 through calls us to live out the dynamics of our new gospel reality. It causes us to live in our everyday lives based on the new story that we have been given in Christ. The everyday implications as adopted sons of God. In Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 calls us to a new gospel unity. By God's sovereign grace in Christ, because of Christ, we have been declared worthy. Not that we are worthy in and of ourselves. But Christ is worthy. And to be in Christ is to have the Father look at us and see the righteousness of the Son. We have been made worthy. And what he tells us here is that this people who are gathered, they are a people who have been made worthy, that they are becoming more and more a people who reflect that reality. And there's a key mark of that. And it's one that the Apostle Paul is relentless in pointing out that we often skate past. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. We see that this call is to walk worthily. Chapter chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, he, he never tires from pointing out the situation that he's in and then talking about these glorious cosmic gospel truths. If, if, if you reading this letter or hearing this letter read from the Apostle Paul, 
The very fact that it's being read from the Apostle Paul, who is a prisoner for the Lord sitting at a Roman prison, means that your circumstance doesn't change cosmic reality. That your circumstance don't change gospel truth. That your circumstance don't change the facts of the gospel. That your circumstances fit into the gospel story. They don't change it. You see, that's why we think when difficult things happen to us, where is God? Why would He allow this? You know know what we're doing? We have a way in which we're telling the story of our lives. And suffering and difficulty doesn't fit in that story. But it does this one. In fact, the very center of our faith is a sinless Son of God on a bloody cross. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. The the therefore. It refers all the way back to all in chapter 1 through 3. But but I can't help but to think that there is a sense in which it's it's clinging on to that last thing in chapter 3, that that doxology. You remember the, the doxology we're talking about? Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Therefore. Therefore. He is able. Therefore. He's able to do more than you can ask. Therefore. He's able to do more than you can ask or think. Therefore. He's able to do more than you can ask or think abundantly. Therefore. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. The the word could be translated, implore you, beg you. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's talked about in the beginning of the letter, the the call of God, the, the grace of God that started in eternity past and extends to eternity future. That you are to walk in a manner, you are to live in a manner that is fitting of the calling to which you've been called. That that is appropriate to the calling to which you've been called. You are to live in such a way, you are to walk out your life in such a way that it fits with what you testify about the grace of God and what it's done in your life. You're to walk your life out in such a way That it's obvious that you know that apart from Christ, you are dead. And you couldn't make yourself undead. But there is one who rose from the dead who made you alive in Christ. Oh, that person? They're living on the basis of that. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You remember Ephesians 2, verse 8? You are His workmanship, created for good works, that we should walk in them. Now remember, it's pointing us to what is already true and calling us to lean into it in a way that we become it in a more clear and clear way. You have been made worthy in Christ. Now, as you lean into that truth and you start walking based on that story, 
then you are walking worthily. Not some sort of earning anything. That's not in view at all here. And by the way, no believer is any more called than any other believer. Well, that person was really called. That person's kind of called. No, all of us were doomed and damned with zero hope apart from Jesus Christ. If He has called us, He has called us by sovereign grace. If He has awakened us to life, He has awakened us to life because we were all spiritually dead. Now you see this word walk, it's a, it's a Jewish sort of uh, signature word of uh, a metaphor that's used for living for God in the world. And in the language of the Bible, it is biblical spirituality. The idea that we're called to walk this stuff out. That these feet take us all kinds of places, and as we go, we're living that story. We walk it out. It affects everything that we do in our lives. We walk into our new reality. We walk into the true story of the world. We do not walk according to the story that we are telling ourselves. After almost 30 years of counseling people, the greatest enemy that most people have in dealing with the issues they're facing is themselves. It's the story that they are telling themselves about what is going on. There is somebody else telling a more faithful gospel story. And therefore, they are responding in a different way. See, see, the picture here is not you've decided to build a house and occasionally you want God to be a subcontractor on your building project. The picture here is that God is building a house. And He calls you to be in on it. Do you see the difference? There's a total difference. We aren't just trying to wrestle a few truths into the story we're telling ourselves. We're giving up on that story. Because the story that we are telling ourselves is partly the story that the world is telling us that we ought to tell ourselves. There's nothing that Satan wants more than to you to live your lives based on a story that you're telling yourselves. Even if you occasionally mix Jesus and some truths into that story. What He doesn't want you to do is to abandon the story the world is telling and the story that you're telling yourself apart from Christ. And to live based on what God has said. See, we are to walk worthy means we live in a way that reflects our calling. In a way that shows that we have been graced. In a way that is appropriate for someone who was dead and has been made alive. You see, this call to walk worthily is not a call for us to try to measure up. It's a call to wake up. Do do you see the difference? We're not earning anything. This is not a gospel ladder. This is a call to wake up to who we actually are. And to walk it out. You see, this is the headline, not just for this section, 
But for the rest of Ephesians, it's about walking worthily. It's about becoming who you are. Now, look at verses 2 and 3. We see that we are called to walk worthily, and we see what it looks like. Verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, if you say, okay, here are the characteristics. Humility, lowliness of mind, means that you think about yourself less. You're not obsessed with you. It means not being self-centered. doesn't mean you think less of yourself. It means you think about yourself less. You are humble, therefore you're not self-obsessed. God has called you out of that to see Him and to see this world. And then gentleness, this meekness. Not weakness, but strength under control. Harnessed. Not to where your strength controls you, but whether, rather you control it. Not to serve you, but to serve what is beyond you. God and other people. With patience. The, the word means long-suffering. The, the word is the idea of long-tempered rather than short-tempered. You see, the opposites are all here. The opposite is, is the default to be, what about me? What about me? And I feel like I'm always getting gypped. And therefore, there is a, a harshness toward others. Not always spoken are obvious. See, the worst part of this is a lot of our harshness toward others comes with a smile. And then we walk away murmuring on how we're getting cheated. Because what about me? And finally, we are short-tempered. The things that other people do that bother us, great on us, and we're quick to, 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 to feel that. Even if we act like we, it doesn't affect us, we do, and we're murmuring to ourselves. Guess what? If that's the way you live, what about me with an internal harshness? Why would they do that? I'm getting cheated and, and a, a short-temperedness with inside. Guess what that does not produce? Unity. You show me somebody who's a what about me person. You show me somebody who, who is a reflexive harshness, even if they hide it. You show me somebody who is short tempered, and I will show you somebody who lives in the midst of, of disunity. So he says here, with all humility, that the idea is complete humility and gentleness and with patience. But notice that last phrase in verse 2. Bearing with one another in love. That is the one that is central to walking worthily. That is how we help maintain unity. That's how we promote harmony. Bearing with one another in love. Enduring with one another in love. In love, the, the very nature of the way it's said implies that they're not everything that we are agree upon, and it's not always going to be easy, but we bear with one another in love. That is the very heart of a worthy walk. That's a reflection of someone who knows that they've been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's someone who lives by grace 
And so it is so obvious that they ought to extend it to others. And therefore, it it makes us long-tempered to use our strength for others and to think about them more than we think about ourselves. Notice here that what Paul will not do is he will not stop relentlessly pointing to the fact that the gospel in the church is to produce a people who see themselves as one. A people who bear with one another in love. Oh, Jews and Gentiles who culturally are at odds. People who are socioeconomically at odds in all these ways and all these stratas and the way people divide up and say, I'm better than that person because I have this or I'm from this background or, or I'm from this ethnicity. And it's just, it's wiped away and it's a people who say, family, therefore we bear with one another in love. Walking worthily demands humility. Gentleness and patience. And those are the characteristics that lead you to bear with one another in love. And those are the characteristics that produce a worthy walk. Let me put it to you this way. The oneness of the church is nurtured by one anotherness. That's what he's saying. Verse 3, eager. Now, it's hard for us to translate this word with the force. He's saying make every effort. Be diligent. Spare no effort. Give it all you've got to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, notice what it does not say. It does not say create the unity of the Spirit. It does not say attain the unity of the Spirit. In Christ we are already swept into the reality that is described as the unity of the Holy Spirit. This is something we already have that we are to become more of what we already have and reflect it all the more. With all the effort we have, we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. How do we do this? There is a shared commitment to a common faith that is our ultimate commitments and makes all of our other commitments look differently. You take away that shared commitment that is our ultimate commitment and our other commitments divide us up. But there is a commitment so large, so glorious, so magnificent, so amazing that it changes everything. That in light of that commitment, nothing else ever looks the same. And so we spend the rest of our lives reordering our priorities based on that glorious story. See, nothing about this is optional. It says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. What does it say? In the bond of peace. What does that mean? Uh, Peacemakers. This is about negotiating. This is about compromising. That's not what's going on here at all. The bond of peace is Christ. 2.14 He Himself is our peace. Christ Himself is our peace. The bond is the most important bond that brings us together. 
It is the bond of peace because it is the bond of Christ. Therefore, it changes the way we view lesser things. This is not a call to compromise. This is a call to never compromise what is ultimate. Do you see that? This is not a call to negotiate. That's not what's going on here. It's saying if you ever lose a sense in which that is ultimate, there's going to be a cascade in which you get all else wrong. Walk worthy. That's what it looks like. By by the way, in this context, humility was seen as something that was marked by weakness. That was true of the Greek philosophers. That was true of of the the, uh, Jewish uh, moralists and ethicists and philosophers. Humility was seen as weakness. And so it is today. I see all people all around mocking people who aren't marked by bravado, always putting themselves out first and saying bombastic things. The way you get recognized today is by being bombastic and tearing other people down. Okay, that may be the way you get recognized in the world today, but it's also a way in which you do not walk worthy of the gospel to which you've been called. See, that's bravado. That's, that's, that's cotton candy. It just disappears. The real stuff. Somebody who really has courage is marked by self-control. Walk worthily. This is what it looks like. Next, look at verses 4-6. through six. Walk worthily. Why is it possible? Now, I want you to just listen to this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, you don't need a biblical hermeneutics class to decide what, this, what these three verses are about. They're about oneness. And they're about allness. God is all. He has called a people out to oneness. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we're like, good grief, Paul keeps beating a dead horse. We got the oneness thing. Let's move on. No. He camps out here because this is one of the hardest things for us to get. We want our faith over in a corner. We we want our faith with, with... Okay, on the corner, we'll share it with people it's easy for us to share it with. People who are like us. We, we don't want it to, to stop trying to domesticate it and have it keep calling us to things and people that we would avoid. But that's exactly what it does. You see, one, one, one. But, but I don't like those kind of people. And I, I don't have the, we don't like the same music. and we, we don't have the same cultural background. Yeah, I know, that's what I'm doing. Nobody is to be able to look at you and say, oh, I realize why those people are in that room. They're to say, what in the world is that motley crew doing together? And why is it they act like they like each other? Or even love each other? I mean, that person over there looks like somebody I'd avoid on the street. And yet they all seem to love him. 
And that, that person over there seems like, like they've got every reason because of their success in the world to be haughty, and yet they're associated with that person I would cross the other side of the street on. What is going on in this room? If that can't be said about us, then we are being less than God has called us to be. Don't you ever think that Christianity is to make you comfortable with a niche group of people for you to sit around and have devotions to live a little bit better life. It is constantly calling you to places you would never go if the gospel is not true. The gospel consistently unsettles your gut. You know why? Your gut is not Lord, Jesus is. You know what your gut gravitates to? Self-protection. Self-exaltation. Self-justification. And those are the very things the gospel is at war with. We put off the old and we put on the new, which means we live in light of this new reality. The the one body is the church, His body. Chapter 2, verse 16. He's reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The one Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The one hope is the hope of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 18, the hope to which He has called you. It's a hope we've already had. It's a Spirit that already indwells us. It's a body that we've been uh, become a part of. One Lord, it's a reference to Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Lord. One faith, the faith that we have in Christ that binds us together. One baptism, the baptism of the Spirit, which is demonstrated in, in the, the act of physical baptism, the obedience we saw this very morning. And there is one God and Father of all. And then it goes on this, this waterfall of the power and might and glory of God. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And it probably here is also a reference to Father, Son, and Spirit. The one who is over all, the sovereign authority who rules all. The one who is through all, active in everyone, the Son, the mediator. The one who is in all, intimately with everyone, the Spirit that is indwelling us. The, this, is, this is the one who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. This one who has the ability to have this allness is the one who has called us to this, this mind-boggling oneness in the church. If you are a Christian, you have the work of the triune God within you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternal community in absolute oneness. God. And He has swept you in to that triune love. Now, if God has swept you into that triune love and and the reality of eternal community in absolute oneness, and He has said the church is to be a place of oneness, then whether or not we live this out is not just a preferential matter, it's whether or not we reflect Him in the world or we lie to the world about who He is. That's what's at stake here. Whether or not the way we walk out our lives is telling the true story of the Gospel. Whether or not we're walking out the Gospel story or whether or not we're clinging on to the story that we told ourselves apart from Christ. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 and 6, 
talking about the church. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Notice the diversity here. But the diversity serves what? The unity. And who's at work bringing this about? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the oneness that meets the allness of God, the Sovereign One, and produces a unity that doesn't make sense apart from the Gospel story. This is the new reality to which we are called. This is the new reality we're called to walk in. This is the story that we start living our lives based on, reminding ourselves of, pounding in our heads, walking out. This is the true story of the world that now animates our lives. We are to live as one because in Christ, by the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are one. To be swept into the sovereign love of the triune God is to be called to reflect that love in the world and the community that He's made us a part of. That's why He says this here. See, He keeps checking us. Because we, always, we, we keep wanting to go, well, yeah, but. I mean, nobody actually lives that out. And, uh, yeah, that's ideal, but. Does he say, eh, you know, yeah, I might save them, but. This is the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth who calls us to live out this reality in our lives. How committed is He to the reality that we would bear with one another in love? That we would demonstrate this Gospel unity because we are living based on His story? He's so committed to it that He gifts us to see it happen. That's the next thing in verses 7-10. through 10. Quickly, walk worthily. Grace, gifts, promote it. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, that means that these grace gifts, all of us possess. Not some of us, all of us. This includes you if you're in Christ. Grace was given to you according to the measure of Christ's gift. The emphasis on Christ-centered diversity of grace, our spiritual gifting here, is powerful. But the reason we're given those gifts is to use them to serve others so our giftedness fits into the body to promote unity. You see, each one of us has a grace gift, a, a ministry ability, listen to this, that is a part of the ministry and ability of Christ. The spiritual gifts are reflections of Christ. Christ possesses all. He gifts us by His grace with grace gifts, our, our, our spiritual gifts, our, our ministry ability that's a part of His ministry and His ability. Think about that. What does that mean? The church is a living gospel mosaic. It is God's masterpiece. You see, as He gives us gifts that are connected with His ability and His ministry, 
and He gives us ability and ministry. Here, 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 here. Not everybody has the same. That means that it's only in the context of the church where everybody sees their need to serve in a way to build up the body and serve others that Christ is magnified. It takes all of us. Not just some of us. Because He possesses all of it. Therefore, we are to serve knowing that in serving others according to the way He has graced us, we are in fact walking worthily. We're not coming up with something. He's already given it. We're leaning into it and walking out. By the way, verses 8-10, through 10, he references Psalm 68-18 here, but, but really he's referring to the whole chapter in Psalm 68. Verse 8, it says, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a, coast of, a host of captives. Literally, he captivated captivity. And he gave gifts to men. And then there's a parenthetical comment. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that, here's the purpose, that he might fill all things. Now, this is just simply saying this. In Psalm 68, there is a prayer to God as the divine warrior and His goodness that He works on behalf of His people. It's a testimony to God's goodness. It is a prayer that God would manifest His power. That the enemies of God would be defeated. That the God who who delivers would strengthen and do good for His people. That He would give good gifts. And through so doing, He would strengthen and empower them because of His work, His victory. This is what would happen. A leader would come in and, and uh, in an area and they would take over the area and, and they would take uh, the, the goods from the people there and they would have a victory processional and they would give goods to their people and so the people would be strengthened by the goods that was won in victory. And in here it says, clearly He's applying this to Christ. And it's saying, Christ ascended. Christ came as the divine warrior. He came as the divine warrior who would defeat the enemy of His people. And He would gift His people. His victory would lead to the gifting of His people and they would be strengthened in His name, not because of their victory, but because of His. He gave gifts to men. He, we live in the, that, that, that victory processional now. The cross has come. The resurrection is a reality. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is returning again. And He gifts His people. He gifts His church that we may make much of Him in the world. He descended in the incarnation. He ascended in the resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. And He did so that He might fill all things, it says. Meaning that He might fill the world with the glory of Christ through His church. Let me put it to you this way. He gives His church all we need. The church is an indispensable reality for those who are in Christ. In fact, the church, he's explaining here, is the expression of the new reality and the true story that we are to live our lives based on. Unity and oneness in His church are essential. Here's a point he's making that's going to be even clearer next week. We live in immaturity. 
and unworthily until we do the hard work of maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the church. Apart from the hard work of maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the church, you can't mature. In fact, the church has been given as that quintessential sign of a people gathered together, a mosaic who together reflects the glory and grace of of this glorious Christ. And, And together comes as this quintessential sign, this is a people who have been redeemed in this way, who are walking worthily. You see, the call is that we are to be loving Christ by loving the church because it is in the community of of believers where this ultimate reality animates us and causes us to see all those lesser things differently that you become humbler, more self-controlled, long-tempered, hopefuler, happier, and more loving which means more courageous. Why would you be more courageous? Because you are more loving. Because when you truly care, when you know what love really is, you would even sacrifice yourself for the sake of it. Why would you become more loving and more courageous? Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall have eternal life because real love demands sacrifice. The church is that body in which these realities are drawn out through our interaction with each other. And there are times in which we move away from where we need to be, but it keeps calling us back and we become better at walking worthily because... We have Him, and He's given us each other. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, I'm so struck by this passage today. And Lord, I pray that you would help us not only to shake our heads this morning, but but to receive this message into our inner being. Lord, I pray that we would believe that probably the most important person in the church for us is the person it's the hardest for us to love. That makes all the sense in the world because you did not come to us because we were lovely and lovable. You came to us because of Your grace. And we are to be a people that reflect Your grace. Oh Lord, help us. Help us to walk worthily. Help us to become who we are. Help us to apply our lives to Your story. We pray it in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.